Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you haven't been able to make it to one of our campuses and participate in the time of giving, you could do so online through our website or by texting to give so that you can continue to participate in the mission that God has given us. We hope that God speaks to you through this sermon. Hey, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome each and every one of you to Cornerstone's uh, weekend church service. Uh, my name is Billy Reeder. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I, specifically, my role is campus pastor at the Brentwood community for Cornerstone. So if anybody's watching online from Brentwood, I want to just say, hey, keep it good in the hood up there, guys. But I'm here in Livermore, and I'm happy to be a part of the team that is diving into one of the most famous scriptures in the entire Bible. And that's saying a lot. We are studying 1 Corinthians 13. The love chapter, the love chapter. Now, it seems like pretty much everybody's got some exposure to the words that we're sort of soaking in at the beginning of the year here, right? Whether we've heard them uh, read at a wedding or whether parts of it are kind of plastered on a mug or a t-shirt or sometimes you walk into somebody's home and there's part of 1 Corinthians 13 on their wall. Uh, most of the time, it's uh, kind of ripped out of context, like, for example, this individual just decided to graffiti the passage um, on somebody's street. So that's one way to get the word out. Actually, this kind of, uh, I think we should start a new ministry here at Cornerstone, Taggers for Christ, right? Who's with me? <laughs> Who's with me? Yeah, you know, this is an interesting one. I was kind of researching the, the ubiquitous nature of 1 Corinthians 13 on the internet. And I found an article about the executive director of one of the largest atheist societies in America. And they were talking about his life and kind of what he does for this organization. And one of the things he said is he performs weddings for uh, secular couples. And oftentimes he will weave 1 Corinthians 13 into his wedding ceremonies. And I was kind of like, hey, atheist guy, stop doing that. That's our stuff. You can't steal our stuff. Go get your own stuff. Uh, no, I wasn't like that. I was like, no, go ahead and use this, right? Because it's just that good. It's so amazing. But here's the thing, just because we see bits and pieces of this passage everywhere doesn't mean we really understand them to the degree that I think we could, or even grasp the implications of the kind of love that the Lord describes here for us. And so the goal that we have for each person at Cornerstone as we uh, make our way through this series is to learn, but to apply and then live this out to receive God's love and then to give this love back to God and then to other people. So that's what we're attempting to accomplish here. And of course, we need the Lord's help in this entire process. So to begin today, I want to read verses one through five of our chapter. And if you've been tracking with us, we've covered about one through four. And we're going to press ahead a little bit today. But let's read this whole chunk together. Here we go. Verses one through five of chapter 13. Here's what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, 
but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Certainly beautiful words. Would you not agree? Would you not agree? Yes, fabulous. It's a stunning, stunning writing. And what we've said so far in our series is the type of love that Paul is teaching us about is actually describing something very different than how love is construed in popular modern thought today. Now, the love that we're studying here is not primarily a feeling for someone else that just sort of randomly comes on you. Like we would say in our modern talk, I fell in love. We would also say, I fell into a trench. And those two things are very different. <laughs> but we use them sort of vernacularly the same. The fact is we're pretty sloppy with our English language for the word love. There's actually three different words that the Bible uses in terms of love, but we only have one for English. So the Bible is then much more precise with its language. Now here is what love means in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is action. Love is not a feeling. Love is not when I feel like it, I love. Love is primarily an action that seeks the well-being of other people above and beyond the self. It also means that we seek the well-being of others without expecting anything in return. And as we've said, the New Testament writers use the ancient Greek word, the specific word here is agape. Is agape. And that's the word that describes God's love. So let's just put this definition on a slide here for us. The kind of love, agape is, that seeks the well-being of others without expecting anything in return. Now last week we learned from Pastor Steve Ingold. Now we have two Pastor Steves, don't we, in our teaching rotation. And so with Ingold we just call him Junior. We call him Junior. Everybody, is Junior here? He was his here. He, is, he, he did a phenomenal job last week. Don't you just love Junior's teaching? He, he's got a lot of energy. Yeah, let's, let's, we can applaud for him. Yeah, so good. Junior taught us last week that agape love treats others patiently and kindly. But, as we just read, there are some things that agape love does not do. And we just read a whole bunch. Uh, that's what our message today is all about. Let me just build the list. Again, we just read it. Here's what love doesn't do. It doesn't envy. It doesn't, it doesn't boast. It's not prideful. It's not dishonoring other people. Love isn't self-seeking, right? It doesn't get easily angered. And love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So there's seven things here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That Paul teaches. He says, this isn't... Agape love. In other words, if you see someone treating another person like this, well, you can conclude that ain't love, bro. That ain't love. That's not agape. That's not agape. That's something else. But here's the kicker. With six, 
Oh, could you put this back up? Slide person. There we go. With six of these seven things, this is exactly how the Corinthian Christians were treating each other. Well, how do you know that? Well, 1 Corinthians is, a, is kind of a, a beefy book. It's a letter. It's a long letter. And if you look at the rest of the letter, we find that Paul is calling out the Corinthians for doing almost all of these things to one another. Let's take envy, for example. Now, this word envy uh, really just means what it says. It's just, it's just jealousy. Actually, the Greek word means to boil, to boil over with resentment and ill will towards another person who is enjoying an advantage or a blessing that I don't have. So there's this idea that in the church there were people that were jealous and envious of, of each other's blessings, their gifts, their position in the church. Maybe the ministry that was flowing from them. We read about there was just a very talented group of people. I mean, they were, they were very talented. They were very skilled. There was a lot of amazing ministry flying out of this church in all directions. But this ugly thing called envy was permeating the church culture in Corinth. And it was causing a good deal of tension and quarreling and strife in the church. Back in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, again, Paul calls it out. Here's what he says. Hey, 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 Corinthians. Hey, guys, you are still worldly. For since there is envy, there's our word, and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? The Corinthians were boiling over at each other. They were jealous. They were jealous. Wow, wow, that person's really gifted. I wish I had their gifts. I wish I had their talents. I wish they had their advantages. In fact, you know, they don't really deserve that. They're kind of a jerk in other parts of their life. Doesn't the Lord see that? I, you know, what the Lord should really see is how gifted I am and how I'm more consistent with that other person, right? So, so there was this sense that you got something that I don't got and I want what you got. And that was, a, that people were allowing those sentiments to get into their hearts. And Paul's addressing the church, and confronting them the way they're treating each other. Now, this is interesting. Isn't this interesting? This is very interesting. You can just nod and just play along. <laughs> it's interesting because we don't typically consider 1 Corinthians 13 to be a corrective piece of literature. We don't consider it to be any type of a rebuke because it's just, as a standalone, so magnificent. In fact, if you just pile this chunk of words up against any other writing in the world that's ever been written, you would say this, this, is, this is considered some of the best, if not the best, in an outright sense. But that's when we isolate it from its context do we sort of look at it like this. But because then of what was happening in the church here, Paul is using some very powerful writing to bring correction to these Christians, to bring agape balance back into their community. So if you just keep going down the list, we did envy. Um, yeah, you're envious of one another. Stop doing that. Love doesn't envy. You're bragging to one another, and there's the passages. You're acting prideful. There was a lot of bragging and pride uh, going on in this church community. 
Uh, and, and, and he's saying, love, that's not love. Uh, he says also, you're dishonoring each other. Now, this is an interesting one. In 1 Corinthians 7, 36, Paul says, hey, guys, you're dishonoring one another, meaning what was happening is the single Christians in the community were hooking up, and they were sleeping with each other. And Paul is like, hey, guys, you're dishonoring one another. Just get married. Just get married, because love does not dishonor one another like that. You're seeking first your own good, he says. And then, interestingly, uh, he says you're cheating and suing each other. In 1 Corinthians 6, you get the sense that there were Christians at odds with each other, and they were following each other around, uh, providing some sort of evidentiary record against one another that they were going to use in court. And Paul says, no, 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 love, love doesn't act that way. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now listen, guys, this wasn't Christians being mean and rude to the non-believers around them. Nor was it the church reacting to some persecution from secularists or non-believers, right? Not even. We, that, that would maybe make a little bit of sense. But in Corinth, Christians were treating other Christians like trash. They were talking trash about each other. They were treating each other like trash. And there was just this sinful, horrible relational dynamics that had rooted themselves in the church. Guys, Corinth was a jacked up place. And the Corinthian church was kind of jacked up too. This is a jacked up church. Has anybody ever been, if you're a church person, have you ever been in a jacked up church? <laughs> Where gossip and... You know, Christians kind of play a little bit more complex social games they can when they're not operating in agape. And it's very possible for a church community to do great ministry, to have awesome stuff and content and, and a great website and wonderful worship, but underneath the facade of that have sort of a layer of trash. And this was happening. And Paul calls them out. People, people, come on now. None of this is love. You're doing it wrong. You're doing agape wrong. Here's what the love of Jesus really looks like. Now, can you imagine for just a moment, like, uh, that Paul writes this lengthy letter. He's in a different city, and he sends the letter to Corinth via a messenger, and it's time for the church to hear the public reading of the letter for the very first time. So we go back 2,000 years, and, and then everybody's gathered. We think this was a pretty large church at this time, and everybody's gathered together, and they're excited, and man, worship is bumping, and I mean, there's energy in the air because their leader, Paul, has written them a letter, and we're gonna read, we're gonna learn, we're gonna grow, and then as the reader, the leader reads this letter out loud. Can you imagine what was going on in the room? People looking at each other, kind of, you know, shuffling and, you know, playing with the bulletin and, you know, filling out the connection card again and just like, oh boy, he's talking about me. And then maybe, just maybe, like when it came to the suing part, the people that were doing this were like looking at each other and kind of blushing with conviction. This was needed. This is beautiful but it's convicting, but it's needed. This teaching on agape love is so needed. It's not just back then, it's needed for you and me today too as well because this is our roadmap, cornerstone. This is our map for how we love each other here in our church communities. We are brothers and sisters in Christ and we're gonna love each other like this. We're gonna be patient with each other. We're gonna 
treat each other with kindness and respect. That's what we're going to do. And what we're not going to do is we're not going to be envious with each other's gifts and their talents and what people have and they don't have. And this is difficult, isn't it, in an age of social media when people just plaster all the great things that happen about them and they're just like, oh, they're highlight reel 24-7 and you just think, wow, my, 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 my life sucks compared to your life. My life's a terrible train wreck. My life's trash. My life's garbage. You have it all going for you. You got a better job. You make more money. Your spouse is better looking than mine. Your kids are better looking than mine. And it's so easy to fall into this comparison trap. But guess what? That just promotes envy and jealousy and division. And we're not going to do that because that's not the way of agape. We're not going to be braggadocious about our own talents and our gifts. Don't compliment yourself. Let someone else compliment you. That's a good rule to live by. We're not going to dishonor one another when it comes to romance. We're creating a safe environment for our kids and for singles to come and explore who Jesus is. They're not coming to get hooked up on or get preyed upon. They're coming to learn about Christ. And we're going to protect that environment. We're going to live like 1 Corinthians says we're to live. That's the goal. That's the dream with God's grace. Now, Paul, of course, thank you, person who said amen. Can we get an amen to that? That's actually, that's actually a good vision for our life. By the way, you're not clapping for me. You're not amening me. We're clapping for the Lord. We're amening Jesus because this is his holy word. Now, Paul, of course, doesn't just leave the Corinthian church in this kind of state of like, he's dropping the hammer, right? Hammer time. He eventually, he goes on to point them to the ultimate act of love, of agape. And that act is found in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and on the third day he rose again according to God's master rescue plan. This is God's love for us, Paul says. The ultimate act of Seeking the well-being of others. Jesus, who gave himself for us on Calvary's hill, expecting nothing in return. And when it comes to agape, Paul points us time and time again, not to our own good stuff that we do maybe time and again. No, he's pointing to Jesus because he's our model for agape. He's the perfected version of agape. He's, he's the target for all agape life and living. And the reason why Jesus did this so perfectly, not because he was some kind of supercharged human being. No, Jesus was God in the flesh. It's because of agape and because of Jesus being God himself you see, God is the very essence and nature of agape, through and through, in all forms of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is an interesting, interesting teaching. Here it is in just its most simplest form, the historic Christian teaching about the nature of God. It's simple and profound. It's just simply this. God is love. God is love. In fact, can we say this together? God is love. You are a theologian if you say this. You are. You may not think you are, but this phrase, it's simple. We teach this to our one-year-olds, our two-year-olds. God is love from the very beginning. As soon as someone just kind of is very, it's just investigating Christianity, this is a truth. This is deeply theological. And while 1 Corinthians 13 may be a passage that actually deals with Christians loving one another with agape, it's also presenting us with an awesome opportunity to study the nature of God himself. If God is love, and 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, ooh, then we have 
a whole other dimension to this, don't we? So I want to take some time, and I want to talk about this. I want to study God's essence together as it relates to agape. And I would like to just warn you right now, I will be geeking out on this. <laughs> Prepare yourselves. Now, here's what we know. What makes God God is love. If you take away love, then God ceases to be God. Love is that endemic to God. Furthermore, what makes a Christian a Christian is love. If you take away love, then a Christian ceases to be a Christian. Do you believe this? Ooh, let's do one more. What makes the Bible? The Bible is love. If you take away love from the Bible, then the Bible ceases to be the Bible. And the reason these statements are so foundational and true is because love is absolutely 100% fundamental to both the, the character of God's personhood as well as our character as believers. And the Bible doesn't just teach us this here in 1 Corinthians 13. It's all over. And the Apostle John, the closest associate with, with Jesus, well, he teaches us this as well in his New Testament writings. In his letter, 1 John, here's what he says. Whoever does not love, does not know God, because God is love. And so we know and we rely on the love that God has for us because God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And what this means is at the center of the universe is a very super powerful being overflowing with love for his world, which means the purpose then of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in the form of Jesus Christ and then give this love back to God in worship and then allow others to receive this same love as we are a channel for agape to the world around us. Now, Christian theologians teach us that when we study the essence of God like this, there's two broad categories that all of the data kind of falls into. And the two categories are the essence of God and the attributes of God. I want to teach you about essence and attributes in a general sense for just a moment, and then we'll apply it to the Lord. So let's start with essence. Generally speaking, the essence of a thing refers to what is essential for the thing to be what the thing is. For example... It is the essence of a triangle to be three-sided. What would happen if you removed one of the sides of the triangle? It's right here. <laughs> it's not a triangle anymore. Have a triangle? Not a triangle. Triangle, three sides, two sides, not a triangle. Good, excellent job. An attribute, on the other hand, is any quality that we can remove from a thing and still have the thing essentially be intact. So, if the triangle is red, and we remove the redness from the triangle, we put some eye drops on it, <laughs> it's still a triangle. We have a triangle, and we have still a triangle. That's an attribute. Attributes can be added or removed from the thing without the essence of the thing being affected. So let us review. An essence is that which makes something what it is, and an attribute is a quality that belongs to a thing. I told you I was going to geek out. Let's apply this to God. When we consider the essence of God, that which makes God God, 
There are basically three things in Scripture that describe to us God's essence. And they are God is light, God is spirit, and God is love. So these theologians tell us are the three things that define God's essence according to Scripture. And of these three things, light, spirit, and love, the one that the Bible spends the most time on by far, the one that we read about the most, the one that we are kind of sort most familiar with is, guess which one of these three? Love. Good job. Good job. Awesome. Excellent. Love is the one that hits us the most. Love is the one that changes and transforms us the most. And of these three, while we're here on the ground, love is the one that we can both receive and participate in giving the most of these three in terms of God's essence. But beyond God's essence, God has many attributes that emanate from his essence. But it turns out that all of the attributes of God that we read about, and there's, there's so many in scripture, these are all manifestations out of the essence of his love. And so let's, let's just kind of try some of these. So God's attributes, I've, I've put some on the screen here, there's many, many more than this. But God is righteous, God's holy, God is sovereign, merciful, wrathful, God is just, he's a God of justice, right? All of these things in the right-hand column, they flow out of and find their root and their source in God's love. Even God's wrathfulness is rooted in his love. And many people think, well, how in the world can God's wrath and God's love even cohabitate in the same being? Aren't those two things diametrically opposed? Well, actually, no. Because God's wrath is simply love's response to sin. God's wrath is God's love and his response to the sinfulness that permeates the world. Thank God it's not the other way around because God's wrath is tempered by his love. God's, God's wrath, if you will, is directed by his love. It's not the opposite. Now, the way to understand the difference between God's essence and his attributes in order to do this, we have to go into a time machine. We have to get into a time machine. So I want us to get into our DeLoreans with our flux capacitors. I want us to go back in time. I want us to go back in time, however long this is, to before the world was created. When we go back to before the world was created, before the universe created, before anything was created, if we see a word in scripture that describes God, that is, hum, that is somehow tied to creation, then that word becomes an attribute and not an essence. Do you follow me? Three people, thank you. Let me, let me, let me, let me uh, expand on this. We go back in time and we see God. There's nothing else. God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. This means that God is in control. This means that somehow in God's wisdom and his beauty and his omniscience that he somehow gives human beings a certain measure of free will and, and agency and yet he superintends the events of all human history according to his divine purpose and will. God is sovereign. He's in control. Jesus take the wheel. Guess what, country singer? He's already taken the wheel. He's in control. Now, God is sovereign. Yes, he is. He is that, but... Before creation, what's he in control of? Also take um, 
Holiness, God is holy. He's high above us. That means he's separated from us in his holiness and his righteousness. And, and yes, God is holy. He is set apart. He is above us. But before creation, what's he set apart from? You could go on with this list. God is just. He's righting wrongs. He's making things correct before creation. What's he doing in his justice? There's nothing to correct. And so we understand these differences when we look at the clock that's wound back and before anything exists except for God himself. And we look at who God is. And what we conclude is this. The DNA of the divine is love. Love propels everything about God. As amazing and as mind-bendingly true as all of the attributes of God are, and we could spend a lot of time studying God's attributes, what we see is that they all find their source and their root in God's love. Now this is an amazing reality of who God is. And what this means then is God didn't create us just because he was lonely and he needed something to love. No, God doesn't need anything. He's fully sufficient within himself. He's a trinity. He's always been in the Father and the Son and the Spirit in this community of this monotheistic God that we serve. He's always been loving. Nor does it mean that God was potential love and then he created us because then he needed something to outlet and actualize the love that was in himself. No, he didn't do that. He didn't create us because he needed to create us. Well, then why did he create us then? Excellent question. God created us because he wanted to love us. It's not need that drives God's love for us. He's loving us by choice. That's powerful. He's loving you by choice. He's not loving you because he's under some kind of obligation. Obligatory love is not agape love. That's just not the way agape works. If God's love were based on some obligatory idea that he kind of had to, how, I mean, that's, that's a sad thought. God were to say to you, oh, I just, I love you so much. Uh, but I have to, so, you know, there's that. <laughs> Wouldn't that diminish God's love for us? Answer, yes. Wouldn't that be jacked up? Yes. Super jacked up. God's Love for us is set upon us in total freedom from the constraints of need. Now, there's a lot of scriptures that tell us this. Here's one that Paul writes about in 1 Thessalonians. It says that, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He's chosen you, and this loving by choice paradigm is powerful because it conveys value to each of us. It's like when you apply for a new job. And you get that call from the HR department of the company, and they say, hey, guess what? Congratulations, out of 175 applicants, we're choosing you. We're hiring you. When that call comes, isn't that empowering? Isn't that validating? Doesn't that make you feel like you've been chosen for a reason? You know, one of the, the favorite things about being a pastor for me is to officiate weddings. I love weddings because it's a party. There's just, it's just like, a, I love the energy of a wedding. Everybody's mostly happy to be there. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's a joy-filled moment, and some couples are very shy, and they're reserved with their affections towards one another, and some couples are not that way, and you're like, oh my goodness, what am I looking at here? Um, regardless, though, it's awesome when a woman turns to her man on the altar and says, 
hey, buddy, out of three billion dudes on this planet, I choose you. I'm tying my life to you. You're it, mister. And then the guy says to the lady, out of three billion gals on this planet, I'm choosing you. You're my one and only. I'm not looking at another one. You're it for me. And every single time I see this, from the front in the officiant's position, I see this incredible change settle in over the couple after the ceremony is over. And the change is this. Oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> no, that's just a dumb joke. Here's the change. <laughs> the change is this switch that gets flipped, this validation from being picked and chosen. And I see it every time. You know, Christy, my wife and I, we didn't get married to each other because we had to. We got married to each other because we wanted each other. We wanted to be together. And guess what, after 23 years of marriage, I'm happy to say by God's grace, we still wanna be with each other and we still want each other and we still choose each other. Christy Reader is the joy of my life. And most of the time, I'm the joy of her life. And that works out so awesome. Agape love is freely given. It's volunteered, which means you're wanted by God. He's deliberately choosing you. His love for you is conscious. It's purposeful. It's not accidental or obligatory. He doesn't have to love you. He wants to love you. That's his essence. That's his core. That's who he is. And any decent study of God has to include a study of God's love in detail to cover who God is and leave out God as love. We should be sued for malpractice if that happens. Now, an interesting thought experiment would be to imagine if love wasn't at the center of God's very essence. This is kind of teasing this out a little bit more. What if God's essence were something else? What if he were a different being? For example, what if at the center of God weren't love but logic? What would that look like? Now, logic and rational thought are not bad things. All the engineers at the lab said amen. Now, those are great things. God invented those things. But what if the DNA of God were logic? That would be a scary world. That would be a world that would be driven by utility and statistics and analytics. There's a story, a book, A Wrinkle in Time by an author named Madeline Lingle. And in this book, she describes an evil world of logic that's created by this demon. And this evil world of logic is gobbling up the rest of the universe at an alarming rate. And in this world, she describes it is perfectly ordered. It is perfectly logical. There's no free will. Everyone has to do exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. Everybody wears the same clothes. Everybody plays the same games. And it's a miserable, scary world. And yet she describes this stoicism. This is a world when, when something ceases to be useful, that thing, that person is cast aside. It's very unfun. And then our heroes the children, Meg and Charles Wallace, are sent right into the middle of this evil world to confront the demon. And do you know how they blast the demon's head off? Do you know how they blow up this evil world? They enter this world with the very love of God. That's the story. That's the book, and it's beautiful. I think the movie completely butchered it, but I didn't see the movie. 
but it's, it's a taste of what it would be like if God weren't love. This probably doesn't quite get there either, but I think of the logic-driven existence of Spock in the Star Trek series, the planet Vulcan. Is anybody with me? Spock is always at odds with Kirk. It's <laughs> always at odds with Kirk because Kirk leads from the gut. He goes by his emotions. It's ready, fire, aim. And yet Spock goes by logic. He's the consummate logician. And he's all about calculated action. And I love it when these two butt heads. And they always want to do different things. One goes by logic. One goes by gut. It's actually like a lot of your marriages. I don't know. It makes for great TV, doesn't it? But what a cold, cold world Scott's, Spock's planet of Vulcan is. You don't want to live on Vulcan. In fact, in the last movie, Vulcan blows up, and there's, there's, there's a lot of destruction in there. Did I just spoil the, the movie? The movie's like three years old. Come on. That's not a spoiler. The point is this, is when you substitute other things for the love of God and you play that out, it's never going to be pretty. But here's a cold, hard reality, is that many world religions do exactly this. They substitute other things for God's agape love. They substitute things like submission and obedience or rule following or even pleasure seeking. You name it, you can substitute out something for God's love. And if it's not the agape described in the Bible, then I would say it's a huge swing and a miss. In tying up our lesson today on agape's love, if you're like me, and you've been tracking with not only this sermon, but the previous ones, maybe you're finding it difficult to kind of absorb this teaching on God's love. Maybe you find it hard to believe. And I think the reason why we find it hard to believe is that this kind of love is almost foreign to many of us. And I certainly would count myself in that. I've told you stories about my growing up and my family before, but here's another one. I was raised in a secular home, and I had awesome parents. My dad and mom, they loved me. My dad uh, was Swiss. He's passed on now. He was born in Switzerland. Actually, um, by, by way of Swiss law, I'm actually a Swiss citizen. I'm in the process of getting my, uh, my Swiss passport, so I'm also an American citizen. So pretty soon, I'll have a Swiss passport and an American passport, and it's basically you have Jason Bourne as your pastor. That's basically what that means. <laughs> I was in a secret CIA government program called Blackbriar, and I lost my memory, and now I became a pastor. No, none of that is true. <laughs> but my dad was, he was actually never the same when he came home from Vietnam. The battlefields of Southeast Asia really changed him. And as a result, he had a very difficult time showing anything near agape love. I remember one time, I grew up on a dairy farm. I, I remember one time it, I had to go feed, feed the cows in the barn. Um, it was hay time. And on one side of the, the barn were cows that needed alfalfa hay, and on the other side were a certain other set of cows that needed oat hay. I think I was nine or 10, and I, I mixed up which cows got what. This is one example. It was kind of an everyday thing. But I, uh, I got... I got hit pretty hard for that. And I just walked on eggshells about making mistakes with my father. Because if I made a mistake, then any type of love was not only taken away, but I was punished for it. 
fast forward and that, that like puts a hook in a, in a person's heart. And in many ways, my relationship with the Lord has been very similar. And so I struggle with this thing called perfectionism because of, of this pattern that was imprinted upon me. I feel that if I make a mistake before God or if I'm not perfect in my execution, even in ministry, I feel like not only will God take away his love, but there's a hammer time waiting for me. And so this teaching on agape love is meant, to, is meant to remove those hooks. It's meant to heal those wounds. And maybe you're finding it difficult for that very reason or another reason. And there's a lot of reasons why agape can be difficult to absorb. But I'm just here to tell you, friends, that the most powerful truth in the entire universe is that God loves you. He loves you unconditionally. He does not expect anything from you in return. In fact, our theological position is you can't give anything to God for return for his love because we're incapable for it. So all we need to do is then throw our hands up in the air and say, okay, God, I'm not worthy of it, but somehow, some way, you love me unconditionally with a love that will just drench over my life and heal my heart and transform me from the inside out. That's the Christian message. That's the Christian teaching. And so if this is difficult for you, I, I totally understand. And my advice to you, friend, would be to sit, would be to rest, would be to soak in God's agape love. It will begin to break up the hard ground of our hearts. It will begin to remove those hooks that have been put into our life by negative forces. It will begin to transform the way that you not only treat God and love God, but also how you treat others. Agape love is powerful, and we need to sit in it, under it, all over it, and we need to let it drench us. And so continue, continue to allow this and continue to say yes to it. Can I pray for us? Can we stand? Let's do this. This is gonna make some of y'all uncomfortable. Let's just go like this. Now, if you don't wanna go like this, just go like this. This is kind of the halfway measure. It's all cool. And if you don't wanna do that, just sit there like this. It's still cool. Okay. So Father, we just receive your love for us today. Lord, there's so many of us who have been beat down by life, by alternate views of what love is. And when we're confronted and when we're just kind of studying this very topic of agape, it can be difficult to relate to it, to bond to it, to allow it into our lives. And by faith, Lord, we just declare to you that we receive it. Lord, fill us up. Just change our hearts with your agape love, a love that does not seek anything from us in return. And yet here's the irony, Lord. When we have it, when we get it, and when we get more of it, we want to serve you. We want to live this life. And it's an amazing paradox. And so today, God, we ask you to fill us afresh now. Jesus, we thank you that you're the model of agape, that you showed us on Calvary what agape looks like. And so, God, we put our faith in that. And we put our trust in you. And we thank you so much for loving us, Lord, and that you are love. Lord, we love you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thanks, everybody.